If you have elementary age kids or below, we would love for them to be a part of what's happening. I see Mr. Jeff right there by the door. He would love to take you over to our Vine Kids classrooms. So good morning. We are glad that you are here. We are actually motoring through uh, the book of Acts. We are in week 53. So those of you that have been coming for some time, we have been on this journey. Those of you that are new, you're catching us right towards the sort of last part of it. We are going to be pushing through the home stretch here. Um, the, we, have, we have been through this thing verse by verse. We have not skipped a single word. We have looked at it its entirety, and we've seen some of the most incredible relationships and stories ever told. But what we've realized in the middle of this book is that Acts is not a letter. It's not just a historical recount of the, the birth and growth and expansion of the church, but instead Acts is a call. It's the, the call of those of us that say yes to Jesus, the call to Christ follower. It's the call of the church. It's who we're called to be together. We found our, ourselves in its places, and that's really what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see a call on our own lives, a call that uh, is going to sound familiar at times and is going to press us to think a little bit differently. But just by way of kind of you getting you caught up to speed with where we are, we divided last week's text into two parts. And so we are looking at the second part this week. Paul is at the very end of his third missionary journey. Uh, he has taken journeys all over the known world at this point in time. This is the last missionary journey that he will go on before he uh, becomes arrested and imprisoned and taken to Rome, where hopefully he believes that he is going to be able to testify in front of Caesar and share the gospel there in Rome, which is kind of exactly sort of what happens. We'll get to that later on. But Paul's at the end of this missionary journey. He'd spent two and a half years in the city of Ephesus where he had taught on a daily basis in a rented sort of lecture hall that he had. He taught daily uh, until until we learn in Acts 19 that the entire region knew about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he begins to feel time to go back to Jerusalem. And Paul knows that something is waiting for him in Jerusalem, and it's not good. We caught wind of that last week. But he goes backwards. Instead of going and sailing directly towards Jerusalem, he sails up north and goes through Macedonia and Achaia, and he revisits all the churches that he had planted there, the Thessalonica church, the Athens, the Corinth, the one in Berea. He visits all those churches, speaks life into them, and sort of revitalizes their heart. And he sets sail back. In the past few weeks, we've looked at some encounters that Paul's had, miracle moment in the city of Troas, where he raises this young boy from life after he falls out of this third-story window while Paul was preaching in the middle of the night. And then last week, we saw him land in the city of Miletus. Now, Paul takes sort of a little island-hopping tour, and he lands in the city, which is 33 miles south of Ephesus. So Paul's taken this huge kind of 1,000 to 1,500-mile trip all the way up north, sailed all the way back around, and he's landed in Ephesus, and he's about to return to Jerusalem. And last week, we looked at Paul's moment there in the city of Miletus. He actually doesn't land in the city of Ephesus because he's in a hurry. He said, look, I want to get back to Jerusalem before the Passover. And he knows that if he goes to Ephesus, he's going to have to reconnect with all those families there where he had spent two and a half years and he just didn't have time. And last time Paul was there anyway, there was this huge riot that broke out, if you remember. And so Paul's like, look, ain't nobody got time for that. So he's moving on. So he stops in Miletus and he 
calls the Ephesus elders together. He sends word that the church uh, leaders, elders, to come down to the city there, and he met with them. And last week, we looked at this long speech that he had. We looked at actually the first part, and we're going to finish it this morning, where he sort of is bearing his heart and his soul to this group of elders, right? They've come 30 miles south, and they're meeting together alone. It's the only speech in all of Acts we see that is just to believers, the rest of Paul's messages and even the other apostles' messages and acts are always to believers and non-believers mixed together. But this is to this, this small group of men, probably anywhere from about four to eight at the most, of guys that have been appointed, biblically appointed, to lead the church in Ephesus. And Paul is essentially bearing his heart to them, and he's telling them, I'm about to give you this entire ministry in Asia Minor. And it's this sort of emotional sort of um, deeply personal moment that we are allowed to peer into. And I think sometimes in Scripture, we look at everything from the outside in, right? And it just sort of looks like words on a page or stories being told. But we forget that these are deeply personal moments. These are encounters between people who are have given their whole lives or who are risking everything to Jesus. And this, this picture that we get as Paul sits with these Ephesian elders is really, really personal. And we're going to see weeping, and we're going to see uh, praying, and we're going to see hugging and kissing, and we're just going to see this sort of deeply sort of poured out emotional experience. And I think we're really privileged to be able to look into this. But last week, Paul looked at these guys, and he said, listen, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what waits for me there, but I can tell you this. It's not going to be good. Because every time I go to a city, the Holy Spirit tells me that here's what's waiting for you, uh, persecution and imprisonment. And he goes, and I know that when I go back to Jerusalem, where the leaders essentially want to kill me, um, that nothing good is there for me. But I know that God is calling me there. And my goal in life, and we spoke a lot about this last week, is that I want to be able to say, Lord, I, I want to surrender so deeply to you that my life goal is to finish the race and complete the task that you've called me to, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And we talked at length last week about what that meant and what with that was our heart's cry to be actually be able to say that, like, Lord, wherever you send me, whatever that means, wherever you, you take me, even if it's back to the most difficult places or into the most deep relationships that I'm, I'm petrified of, or maybe it's to risk everything, or maybe it's just to actually let go of something. Whatever that means, whatever you take me, God, I, I want to do that because I want to be faithful to what you've called me to. So that was the first piece, and, and today we're going to pick up on the second piece. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 20, and we're going to finish this speech out that Paul has to this gathered group of Ephesian elders. Uh, we're going to pick up in 25, but I'm going to start in 22 because I want you to hear the, the part we finished on last week so we can carry it into this week because it's all one big, really powerful sort of emotional cry. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll... Uh, go through these together this morning. Lord, I thank you that your word is timeless. I mean, it is completely timeless. Lord, you use it to speak directly to our hearts. Context may be different. Uh, history may be different, but your word never ends. And so, God, as we read these words and we gaze into this relationship that was unfolding some 2,000 or 1,900 years ago, God, we, we are, are looking into um, depth and real relationships. And God, yet it speaks to us, and your Holy Spirit uses it to speak to us even today. So Lord, I pray this morning what we would encounter was we, we would encounter you. We wouldn't encounter a conversation between Paul and the 
elders, Lord, we would encounter you and that you would show yourself to us in these words. Take a moment in your own heart and, and just ask God to teach you this morning. Just ask him to teach your heart. Whatever that might mean, whatever God needs to speak to you, just, just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or in front of you or just somewhere around you. Even if you've never seen them before, don't know their name, just be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we commit our time to you. We commit our hearts to you. We ask you to teach us. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we believe that deeply. So teach our hearts this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So get this picture. It's, it's Paul and a few of his companions. So a couple of the guys he was traveling with that were headed back to Jerusalem in this little city, port city of Miletus, with this group of elders gathered around him. And they're probably all alone. It's probably just the, the eight or ten of those guys sitting together. And Paul is sharing with them some deeply troubling and deeply personal um, truth and information. We're going to start in verse 22 where we left off or where we ended last week, and then we're going to kind of work through 25 and below this morning. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and of the flock, and keep watch the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood." I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw you away uh, after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day, even with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work that we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they wept and they embraced him and they kissed him. And they, what grieved them the most was the statement that he would never see, that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So what we're seeing is this really personal glance into very deep relationships. So these are men who have given their life, right, to the cause of the kingdom of God. Paul has shared the gospel with them in Ephesus. They have been raised up. They have been discipled. They have probably spent every day for two and a half years with Paul, sitting there teaching and then learning how to teach and learning how to disciple others. And 
through Paul, God has appointed them to the position of elder in which they are in charge of the entire church of Ephesus. And not just the small house churches, but all the small gatherings together. And they have some very specific roles about guarding the flock and protecting the flock. And we see this sort of intimate moment where Paul says, I am handing everything that I've done off to you to lead this church. Now, at face value, we could really explore this text from the standpoint of what biblical leadership looks like, what the role of elders and overseers and shepherds, all meaning the same thing, what that role is in the church and how we have to take that seriously. And and we can do that and we might do it at another time. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the bigger principles because there's some bigger principles here at play that, that really work for all of us as followers of Christ. Because here's the thing is that even though these are men that are called to biblically lead the church, right? Their calling as Christ followers is not different from yours or mine. We are called to follow Jesus. And there are some principles at play here that are really important that aren't just isolated for leadership. Although we could look at this and sort of elevate the leadership role in terms of overseeing the flock. What I want to do is pay attention to the bigger principles. So I'm going to ask you to do two things. I'm going to ask you not to forget our context, right? The context is Paul sharing his heart with these elders and instructing them on their role as they lead the church. But I'm, ask, I'm going to also ask you to expand your horizons and glance at the bigger principles at play because there's some really powerful things here that we need to hear as followers of Christ. And the first one is something that rattles through Paul's ministry and teaching all the time. In every letter that he writes, in every movement that he makes, we begin to see Paul come to grips with a really important truth that I think most of us haven't fully grasped yet. And that is this. Paul understood that God didn't need him. See, God does not need you. He doesn't need me. Now, I'm not trying to be harsh. It's just the truth. Paul understood that every place that he went, he had a task, and that task was given to him by the Lord, and that he was to share the gospel, but that he was not the central piece of the message. It was not about Paul. It was not about Paul being present, but Paul was constantly at a place where he was moving himself to get out of the spotlight, out of the arena, and to hand the ministry and the church and the gospel off to the people. Paul deeply believed that his call by the Lord was to share truth and then get out of the way because God was the central figure. Jesus is the central movement in the gospel and not Paul. And what he's doing with the elders is he's saying, look, you don't need me. For two and a half years, I was with you and I instructed you and I taught you, but I don't need to be present for the church to thrive. Now, church leadership, especially in our, in our current kind of contemporary culture, we're really bad at this. Most of us have a, and I say most of us, not just leadership, most of us as followers of Christ have this extremely inflated view of ourselves. Like we are necessary for things. We think we're necessary at work. We're necessary in home. We're necessary in whatever environment is. I mean, we think that we are the linchpin in holding things together. And a lot of us see that role in times of the church. Like church leaders are really bad about that. We think that we are the linchpin. If I go away, right, if I don't preach, if I don't lead, if I'm not the central figure on stage, then this whole thing isn't really legitimate. And we're pretty guilty of making that happen as Christian consumers because we have celebritized pastors and bloggers and authors and worship leaders. We don't tend to validate something as true or right, or big, or real, unless somebody out there who we have celebritized says it. 
you've ever worked in a church with sort of uh, more than one uh, pastor or whatever, it's really a lot of times if, if the, the, the bigger guy, the senior pastor doesn't show up or whatever, then it's not really like a full event, right? But when he shows up or she shows up or whatever, like when that leader shows up, then we have sort of a real gathering because it was important enough for that person to come. And we become the central figures in this puzzle, right? And so we think that if this person isn't the one, then it's not really happening. Well, Paul essentially understands that God doesn't need him. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me at all. He doesn't need anything you even have to offer. A lot of times we think that we have things to offer God. I've got my services, I've got my prayer, I've got my work ethic, I've got my teaching ability, I've got my, my skill set, i got my whatever. The truth is God needs nothing from you. He is 100% complete. He is perfect. In fact, Paul talks in Philippians that God is actually the giver of all things. The very fact that you draw breath is because God gave you breath. That he is the giver of all things. He needs nothing from us that we can add nothing to him or take anything away from him. And the reason this is really important is because we have to understand our deep need for Jesus. We have a deep and desperate need for the Lord. God is not relying upon us. He does not rely upon me to stand up here and articulate the word, and if I don't do it well, then everybody falls off the edge. The truth is, God is complete, but he chooses to use humanity as part of his incredible redemptive movement because God uses the imperfect and the broken to bring glory to himself. Not because he has to, because he desires to. One of my favorite pictures of this plays out in, in Luke 19 or really in any of the gospel sort of retellings of that triumphal entry. You remember that moment on Palm Sunday where Jesus comes back into Jerusalem a week before he's about to be crucified, right? To go through the most uh, unimaginable kind of death and torture ever devised by human hands. And the disciples have gathered, gathered with Jesus and they've got this baby donkey and they lay their cloaks on it and he comes riding into Jerusalem. And as he's riding through the Mount of Olives up into Jerusalem, people are laying their cloaks down and, and these branches down the road and they are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And this, growl, this grand kind of parade of people have gathered and the Pharisees are there, the religious leaders are there. And they look at Jesus sitting on the back of this donkey and they say, tell your disciples to close their mouths. You know what Jesus says to him? He says, listen, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will cry out. Meaning that God doesn't need our proclamation of him. All of creation cries out of his glory. We have to begin this movement of understanding that as Christ followers, God does not need you. It's a humbling realization, but it's one that we've all got to come, we all have to come to. God doesn't need me. I am desperately in need of him. It is a one-way movement. But God in his redemptive, amazing glory wants to use me. He wants to redeem me and use me for a set-apart, holy purpose. It's exactly what he did with Paul. He, Paul. he called Paul on the road to Damascus, this guy that was chasing down Christians, persecuting them, that was misguided and broken and sinful. And God takes the initiative, redeems his life, and sets him on a path to use him to change the world. And what did Paul do? Nothing. 
You know what Paul was doing? He was walking down the road when God showed up with this light and knocked him to the ground. Paul didn't earn it. Paul didn't work for it. Paul didn't deserve it. But God did and moved and then used him. And Paul recognized that he didn't have to be there. And so he's setting the church elders up, basically saying, look, I'm never going to see you again. Ever. After spending two and a half years together, he looks at them and he says, you will never see me again. This is yours to leave, right? You don't need me. A lot of us have to come to that realization that God does not need us. Life will function without you. It will keep moving. People will keep breathing. Even the people in your life will survive because God is that good, right? So we have to understand that first truth. God doesn't need you. The second thing that he begins to tell these elders, which is really important, is sort of a third of this whole passage, and it's about being alert. He says you've got to keep watch and you have to be on your guard. Now he's giving specific instructions for the church leaders because there was a threat that was at play against the early church. And that threat was false teaching. Every one of Paul's letters, if you go read them, there is a section or multiple sections devoted to the fact that we have to be on our guard against false teaching, false doctrine, or bad theology. And Paul spends a lot of time addressing it. In fact, in this gathered moment, he looks at him and he says, guys, you have got to be aware that you are facing something that is incredibly dangerous. In fact, it is like savage wolves. And you know what's going to destroy the church is not some kind of physical movement, but the untruth that swells from within it. And Paul says, you have got to guard your hearts, guard the flock, and keep watch and be alert because it is sneaky. And it is a destroyer, and it is a bringer of death. And it is false teaching. Now, most of us would think that, hey, we knew that heresy and those things were happening in the early church, right? I mean, we talk about the Judaizers, or we talk about all kinds of things, right, that we could label as church heresies and how they were coming up in the early church and how it was really important to sort of address that. But, but really, in today's day and age, like any church on the street, right, like any church out here, like we're kind of immune to that. But the reality is, is that our churches are filled with false teaching, corrupt doctrine, and bad theology. It spews out of our pulpits. And it's just as deadly today as it was 2,000 years ago. And Paul says that you have got to be aware of it and fight against it with everything that you have. Now, I've talked about this at length before, so I'm not really going to do it much this morning. But I think that a lot of our false teaching in our churches and even in our you know, books or wherever you want to look at it, really comes in two major categories, right? The first is this category that's kind of Jesus plus anything, right? So that kind of category of false teaching tells me that, well, first it tells me that I can put my confidence in something other than Christ for salvation. So there are a lot of different ways to God, right? It's all one mountain. All we got to do is get to the top. Doesn't matter what your religious movement is. As long as you're up that mountain at the very end, we are all going to get there. So I can put my confidence in my own ability to morally exist. I can put my confidence in other gods or other ideas or other religions. We're all going to make our way up to that mountain, right? That's the first one. And most not super prevalent for a lot of us because as, as Christians or as people that are coming to a, a biblically teaching church, we would recognize that the Bible teaches very specifically that there is no other way to heaven except through Jesus. 
Jesus himself says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one avenue for salvation. So most of us in this room most likely would say, yeah, yeah, I agree with that, right? We don't put our confidence in anything else but Jesus. But where we get caught off guard is that there's another piece to that puzzle, which is, no, I don't put my confidence in something other than Jesus, but I put my hope and confidence in something plus Jesus. And we're taught this all throughout contemporary Christian culture. Jesus plus my giving, Jesus plus my moral effort, Jesus plus my work ethic, Jesus plus my praying, Jesus plus my church attendance, right? That I have to believe in Jesus, but I have to do X, Y, and Z to really fulfill my sort of happy movement or my best life or my whatever or for God to be pleased with me. That I need Jesus as my only movement to salvation. However, God is waiting on me to keep up my end of the deal. And I gotta, I gotta morally live right. I gotta perform for him, just like I did for my parents. Like I've gotta show him that I'm giving my best effort. And so I clean my life up a little bit on the outside and I try and put it all together and I put on my happy face as I walk into church and I don't wanna miss a Sunday because I don't want God to punish me. And I know that if I miss a bunch of Sundays then God's gonna maybe remove blessings from my life and so I need to make sure that I'm here because it's Jesus plus my church attendance that makes God happy. The reality is, is that scripture teaches that it's Jesus plus nothing. It is absolutely just Jesus. Because if it's Jesus plus anything, it actually subtracts from the sufficiency of Christ. Meaning that Jesus isn't enough. He was not enough for my fully abundant real life here and the eternal promise of life when I die in heaven. Because I have to do something else to get there. So Jesus was 90%, 99% enough, but God needed me to go the last little bit. And the truth is a lot of people see grace that way. That we have to work and work and work and work and we do the best we can. And right when we can't get there, God does the rest. And that is a lie. The Bible teaches that you can do nothing. You can't work. You can't get closer. You can't make a movement. But God in his infinite, incredible grace does what you could not do for you, and he does it completely. So the first movement of our sort of false teaching we buy into is this Jesus plus something else. Look, you'll never work your way into a happier life, spiritually, right? Never. Always just Jesus. The second real piece of that that we see, or the second category is the sort of health and wealth lie that I've gone over a bunch. That health and wealth gospel lie tells us that God desires for us to be affluent. He desires for us to have things. He desires for us to have the material. And that if we do our best, we can have the best and happiest life now because God wants to reward our efforts with blessings. And so if we give $10, God will reply tenfold and we'll get $100 back in blessings. That's the gospel of health and wealth. It says, God desires for me to have this abundance of stuff, and he waiting to bless me that if I'll just have enough faith, God will give me all my wildest dreams, right? Turn on the TV, go to Mardell's and go to the self-help section, pick out any book, your best life now, right? You can be the greatest you. Ten steps to a happier life. There's a self-help section in our Christian bookstores that say, if I do, God will. God will give me. So if I just keep giving away, there's gonna be a return. Here's the lie in the health and wealth gospel. 
as that we give or we do in order to receive a blessing. Never in Scripture do we ever see Jesus promise that if we sacrifice or we give, he will give us a fluence blessing. Look at the disciples. They gave up everything, and most of them died for it. Look at the widow. She goes to the, uh, the temple and she lays her last penny on it. And as she's walking out, God doesn't dump a rainbow full of pot of gold on her head. For all we know, she goes away broke. See, we are taught that giving comes out of our uh, abundance. But the reality is, as I'll mention just a minute, it comes out of our sacrifice without a desire for return. A health and wealth gospel says, God, I want to do this so that you will give me this. You know what the gospel actually calls us to? It just calls us to come and die. Like, God, I'm giving because you already did for me. Immeasurably more than I ever deserve anyway. Why would I even long for anything in return? Like, you saved me. You redeemed me. You pulled my life out of the garbage pit. And I want to be obedient because of that. Not because you're going to promise me a new car or more land or more stuff. I don't deserve the breath that I draw. And so my obedience is because I get to, not because I expect something. It's a false teaching, and it's a lie, and it is poisonous. So we've got this picture here that Paul's saying, look, be on your guard, right? False teaching is real, and it's dangerous. So God doesn't need you. Keep watch, be alert. That third piece that we see is really kind of in two pieces. All right, he says this. He says, look, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you this kind of hard work must help the weak. So Paul says, listen, guys, I spent two and a half years with you, and I worked hard right? I didn't desire other people's stuff, silver, gold, clothing. I worked hard for my companions and for the weak. Part of what Paul's looking at these guys and he's saying is he's saying, listen, don't be a burden on the people around you. Like, work hard. Now, Paul was a tent maker. We know that. Remember back in Acts 18 when he was in Corinth and he had a quick relationship that sort of with Priscilla and Aquila that developed a fast friendship because they all shared the same trade. They were tent makers. Paul was taught the skill of tent making by his father. It was a very lucrative business because a lot of people lived a semi-nomadic lifestyle and tents were a big deal. And so as a tent maker, you always had someone to sell to. And so Paul had a skill in the towns that he went to. He would work and make money to provide for himself so that he wouldn't be a burden on the people around him. And he's looking at these elders saying, look, don't drain people. Supply for your own needs. Work hard. Now Martin Luther, the great reformer, had a really interesting way of looking at our vocational work. He said this. He said that when we are called to follow Jesus, Jesus gets everything, including our places of work, meaning they become an opportunity for us to live out the gospel. He basically says your vocation, whatever that is, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a counselor, or whether you work at the Gap, or whatever it is, whatever your job is, is an opportunity for God to use you and display his glory. So work at it as if it was your calling. Because when we surrender to Jesus, our life is his. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it as working for the Lord and not for men. What Paul's basically saying here is, look, work hard. But you know what's coupled with work hard? 
is this idea of being content. Look, when I was with you, I didn't want somebody else's silver. I didn't want their gold. I didn't want their clothes. But I worked. You know, most of us live lives that are extremely, well, they're just shallow, just for the lack of better term. We just want more. We're just not content. We're always one step away from whatever it is that would make us happy. I just need one more raise, right? Just that one raise. Or we just need to get my my wife's car fixed. Or we just need to be able to finish paying off this one debt. Or I'm just this one step away from whatever. If I just had a husband, then all of it would work. I'm just one more thing away from making this whole thing kind of finally work because I'm not content where I am. Most of us live in a place where we are living non-content lives. We are waiting on something else all the time. We're not happy where we are. We're restless because we've yet to find joy in the moment. You know what that says? It says this, Jesus, you are not enough for me. When we live in a way that is not content, and I mean gospel contentment is that, that concept that says, Jesus, no matter whether I'm broken, whether I'm sick, whether I'm poor, whether I'm alone, whether I'm shipwrecked or starving, you are all that I need, and you will sustain my heart and my life. That's what gospel contentment is. It doesn't mean the situation is going to be perfect, and we're all going to skip down the road holding hands. Life may really be cruddy. But you know what it means? It means in the middle of that, Jesus, you are enough for me and you can sustain my soul. I don't need something else to bring about my happiness because you are about my joy. Most of us live in a place where we desire to say that, but our lives preach something else. We are one thing away. And guess what? You will always be one thing away. Once you get that thing, whatever it is, it's just one more thing. It always is. Until we're able to say, Jesus, you are enough for me. I am content. That's what Paul's saying. Look, I'm looking around me. I see all these wealthy people. I see this. I see that. I don't want their stuff. I don't want their car or their clothes or their house or their life or their job or their marriage. I'm not longing for somebody else's. I'm saying, Jesus, you are enough for me. It's hard to do. We look around our culture today. And we see things that we want. And we are told through advertising that our lives aren't complete until we have X, Y, and Z. And if that's not enough, we walk into church buildings and we're reminded of the life that we don't have. Because my marriage is cruddy and theirs is perfect. And their kids sit still. And for some reason, they've got shoes on, right? And they match. And they didn't, I mean, it's just this whole thing with us. Be content. But look at this. This is the kicker. So work hard, be content. And then he says, you know why you do all this? You do it for a purpose. And you know what that purpose is? He says, listen, you know that my hands have supplied my own needs and for my companions. Verse 35, and everything I did, I showed you that this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. So he said, look, I work hard and I live content. And you want to know why? So I can give. That's essentially what Paul is saying. You can't really change that. I can't sugarcoat it anymore. He says, I work hard and I live content and I don't desire other people's stuff. Why? So that I can give. Because Jesus himself said, it's better to give than to receive. We are called 
to be people that give. But like contentment, we're all one step away from really being great givers, right? Because we're taught to give out of our abundance. From the very beginning of our life, from kindergarten on, we are taught that if I have two crackers, right, I will keep a cracker and I will give you one because I have more than I need. We give that way, right? As long as I have whatever it is that I've got taken care of, I will give you out of my abundance. So I've got more clothes than I need, so I clean my closet out, and what do I do with my old clothes? I give them away. I feel good about that. I don't want to put them in the trash. I'm giving my old stuff to the homeless guys because I have too many, right? We do that with church. We give out of our abundance. Paid all my bills, paid all my things, did all my stuff, and I got a few extra you know, nickels laying around, and I'm going to give those to the church because I've taken care of everything else. And we're taught to give out of our abundance. <clears throat> the problem is when you read Scripture, Never are we called to give out of abundance, but always out of sacrifice. At every turn, we're called to give out of sacrifice. We give first to the Lord. And you know why Paul says he works and he's content? He supplies for his companions, meaning he gives so that they can eat and have life and clothing and they're traveling with him. He works so that he can supply and give to their lives. But what else does he do? He does it so he can give to the weak. You know what the weak is? The weak is the broken and the weak are those in need. So Paul says, look, church leaders, elders, do these things so that you can live a a life that gives. Jesus himself said, look, give, give, give. We are called to be a people that are ridiculously gracious, like just giving beyond our means. And this is not a lecture on church tithing. Paul's not even talking about that. That's ridiculous. I'm talking about living lives that give to missionaries, to causes, to people, to the needy, to the hurt, that say, look, I want to give to people because I want to be somebody that has not just giving out of my extra, right? Because we'll never quite have extra enough, but I want to give someone that gives when it hurts. When that person comes in town with no place to stay and the last thing you have is your house sort of ready for them, you just open it up anyway because Jesus blessed you with a home and they're passing through. There's a culture of that all through scripture. Giving is never easy. Things always happen at the wrong times. Always. We give out a sacrifice, right? We honor the Lord. So he doesn't need you, right? He calls us to keep watch and be on guard, to work hard and be content, and to give. Just to give. Quit being takers and consumers. We've created such a consumer-driven culture in our country, especially in our churches. Like, give me, give me. You don't have that program that I'm going somewhere else. Like, give me this. Why do we not have that? I want a coffee machine. I want want a church that supplies my stuff. Be a giver, right? Lastly, and I'll wrap it all up because I've done way too much already this morning, but this is is the last verse, verse 36. When he had said this, he knelt down with them and he prayed. And they wept and they embraced him and they kissed him and they grieved the most that he said he would never see their face again, his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Super personal, right? Um, This sort of moment that they're all having together where Paul says, I'm never going to see you again. And they fall to their knees and they pray and they weep and they hug and they kiss and they walk him to the boat. Never see him again. The guy that played the most sort of influential role in their spiritual life, they will never see his face again. And most of them knew what that meant. It didn't mean that Paul was retiring and was going to Bora Bora. It meant he was going to Jerusalem to be arrested, right? And probably killed. But what I'm struck by is the depth of relationship here. Like, 
we are called to have deep and real relationships with people, like ones that really matter, where we're known and they know us, where our hearts are somehow deeply connected, where we weep with each other's pains and we celebrate each other's triumphs. Now, I'm not saying every relationship is like that. I mean, good Lord, if there's all that hugging and crying, I would die. So I'm not like saying all, but there's got to be those, those, those relationships that we have where that is how well we're known. But we live and we operate in such a superficial kind of culture. Even our church culture. Hey, donuts, happy. Nice to see you. A couple, shake a couple hands. Glad hand people. Go on your own way. See you next week, right? And I'm not talking even about a life group, like getting together and studying the Bible. I'm talking about real deep relationships that exist outside of those two or three people in your immediate family. The people that you've poured your heart into that will walk with you that will counsel you when you look at them and you go, I feel like God is calling me to go back to Jerusalem and that could cost me everything. And they're going to weep with you and pray with you and walk you to the ship. These guys didn't talk Paul out of it, right? They didn't say, that's crazy. Take the easier road. Don't do that. Stay here with us. They prayed with him and they walked him to the boat. In other words, what they're saying is we honor God's call on your life and we will support you even if it means we'll never see you again. I had a group of guys in my life that I met with for six years, every Monday night for six years. And these guys and I are still, we're all still super close. But those moments for those six years were really intense. We all got married at the same time together. We walked through some of the most difficult things, tragic things, all kinds of things. I long for that still. I still don't have that depth of relationship because life has a way of making that difficult, right? And the older we get, the less we're really willing to be vulnerable, um, and part of the challenge is those of you that are, that are kind of tipping your 30s and 40s and 50s realize it's harder to make friends, right? You're not 20 anymore. We're all in the exact same thing or in college and everybody's kind of fighting through these things together. I mean, life has a way of throwing up barriers and walls, time constraints. This is something you have to fight for. If you don't have it, you've got to start praying, God, I need you to open my life to people that would, just a few of them that would, I could have a deep relationship with that would know me, <coughs> that I could weep with, like, that I could go and just bear my soul with, that wouldn't just judge me, but would cry with me and walk me to that ship. This is why the church exists. What we've turned it into is an entertainment theater. We've turned it into a place to go and tell a few stories and disappear in an hour. The church exists for those moments. And it was not there. We've got to ask ourselves, why? We really live in a place where we exist to know and be known. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. Look, what Paul's giving to these elders is incredible. It is so incredible for you and I to glance into that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us, but he desires to use us, and we've got to protect our hearts. Paul's teaching is real. Don't believe the lie. Measure everything I say up against the Word of God. Measure everything you read up against the Word of God. Every blog, every podcast, measure it up against God's Word. Right? Work hard. See your vocation as an opportunity to honor the Lord. Live content. Jesus, you are enough for me. Become a giver. Do this with purpose. It's not easy. And ask God to provide some relationships in your life where you can be exposed, deeply and truly exposed. And that those people might weep with you and celebrate with you and walk you to the ship. Let's pray together.
God, we thank you that your word is timeless and it is active and it is alive. And while that's a lot of words for this morning, Lord, the truth is it's just there. We can't ignore it. We have to deal with it. And Lord, I confess that so many of these things are things that <clears throat> kind of riddle in my heart, that, that bounce off the walls in there. They resonate and they resonate and they resonate, but they never find a home. So God, I pray that you would make these words find a home in our heart. They would penetrate, they would take root, and they would change us. So as we close our time in worship, Lord, may we, may we cry out to you, the God who gives all, the God who sustains all, the God who is everything. Father, for you alone are all that we need. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. Amen.